Good morning. Uh, welcome to Summit Drive. If you're new or a guest, my name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here. And, you know, I think I first learned what it meant to watch the clock when I was probably in grade three of elementary school. You know, the spring afternoons, I'd be squirming in my seat, longing to get outside just to let my legs run, to get my hands and feet in the dirt to explore. And then there was that tick, tick, tick of the second hand that could almost drive me crazy. And that's, my little school was just in the middle of that uh, beautiful plain there in Salmon Arm uh, in the River Valley. And so there was that, that waiting, that longing, that expectation. The longing to move from, you know, the smell of felt markers and pencil sharpeners, the th- grade three haven't changed my socks since last week, to the crisp... You know, snow just melted, sun-warmed earth scent, and playing with friends. So yeah, I was an eager beaver. And the slowness of the second hand, it almost seemed directly proportional to the anticipation of what's to come. But it wasn't just watching the clock. That wasn't the main thing. It was what was on the other side of the door. That's really what I was watching. And Advent is a bit like that. It's a longing for the world to be put right, for what's on the other side of the door at the return of Jesus. And you might be wondering, like, isn't Advent about Christmas? Well, sort of. See, Advent isn't just Christmas, the extended edition, with deleted scenes and commentary from the executive producer. In the Christian calendar, Christmas time runs from Christmas Eve to January 5th. That's the feast. That's the party. But Advent isn't Christmas time. Yes, Advent prepares us to celebrate the feast of Christmas, to have the feast by getting us more deeply in touch with the very reason we need Christmas in the first place, why we need God to come. Advent is the fast. It's there to grow our hunger for Jesus and his return. Just like the people of God were longing for the Messiah to come the first time when Jesus comes. So yes, we're going to talk about Mary and Joseph and angels and and Bethlehem over the next weeks for sure. But Advent is primarily for reckoning with the fact that the world is still deeply, deeply broken. That we're still waiting. So Advent is the fast, not the feast. Advent leads to the feast, Christmas, but it's primarily about pointing to the ultimate feast. When Jesus returns, the full consummation of his kingdom, all of the promises coming in all of their fullness, this is to grow our hunger for that. And so I need Advent, and I think you need it as well. Like there's a lot of jingle and sparkle that gets drummed up at this time of the year. You know, Starbucks, Tim's, McDonald's, they all have their take on a holiday cup that slosh around our drinks as we move from store to store, and there's Bing and there's Mariah. You know the drill, and you know the pressure. And it all starts as we find ourselves kind of sucked into the cultural vortex of American Thanksgiving. And it starts with the door-crashing sales of Black Friday. Now, the irony is pretty thick, isn't it? You've got this day where we say, God, we're thankful for all that you've given us. And then we look at our watch and be like, the Black Friday sales start in like 12 hours from now, get ready, shop till you drop. It just comes right on the heels of saying how thankful you are 
Interesting, ironic for sure. And then it all culminates in the next great holiday of Boxing Day. Hung over on turkey and gravy after unwrapping all the gifts from the day before and finding that it's, it's not enough. By the afternoon, you know it's not enough. It's never been enough. So it's back to the big box store for the low, low prices yet again on Boxing Day. This, I realize, is a bit of an oversimplification. True enough. But when we try to make meaning or pursue fullness by conjugating the verbs to want and to get, perhaps this sketchy sketch isn't that far from the truth. And so we feel the pressure in the face of holiday cheer. And that's why I need Advent. And that's why you need it too. Because it's not just the cross pressure of of timekeeping in the secular sense. The same sort of glitter gloss can actually be sprayed over the Advent se- se- uh, this Advent season in the name of, of Christmas in a Christian sense as well. See, there's been, I think, a somewhat fair critique of at least certain strands of Christianity, particularly in North America, where we can tend toward a happy, slappy, triumphalistic, God is good, so everything is fine, smile your way through it kind of attitude. This isn't equal to the rich sense of joy that the biblical authors speak of, but it's almost a denial of the darkness and pain and dis-ease that's still very much with us. So Advent is an invitation to honesty. It leads us to take an inventory of the darkness. Uh, in, In Fleming Rutledge, she has this book on Advent, which is fabulous. And in it, she writes, Advent isn't for the faint of heart. Indeed, Advent and the focus on the second coming of Christ is intended to disrupt our sense of peace and security, actually. And in the Northern Hemisphere, at least, the weather cooperates with the theme, right? The abrupt and early darkness following our time change is a fact simply of how the world spins and winter's coming. Of course it is. But with the lack of daylight, well, it helps us grow our longing for the light to come. So yes, Christmas is about the light has come. Advent is about waiting in the dark. Christmas tells us, yes, God has acted in history. And Advent tells us we're still waiting for God to act again. So the season is soaked in what theology nerds call eschatology, or the doctrine of the last things, or the end times. And I think that matters. Advent gives us the space to learn to to wait And then to actively witness to the reign of Jesus Christ. But, and this is key, we don't wait alone. Uh, About a month ago, I was was trying to finalize the title for the Advent series. And then I was sent the song that we just sang. That great Advent song, While We Wait. Listen again to the, the lyrics of the third verse. You're here in the center of all hopelessness. When little of our faith is left. You're lifting up our weary heads. You're here in the tension of, of life that was, the here and now, and, and the yet to come. And through it all, your promise stands. And what's the promise? That you're with us while we wait. So that's where we're going over this series on Advent. We're going to be paying attention to those promises of Jesus and the posture that that calls us to take and then the purpose that we're given That's what we'll see throughout this series and in our texts we're looking at today. So first, the promise, second, the posture, 
And third, the purpose. Um, the lectionary readings. We're going to be following the, the revised common lectionary through the Advent series. And if that's like, what on earth? I don't even know what those words mean. It just means a set reading. And if you kind of look at uh, the tradition of, of the biblical world, um, lectionary or set reading started at the time of Moses among the people of God. Jesus, when he stands up in Luke uh, 4 and he reads from Isaiah 61, he's probably reading the lectionary reading for the day. So it's not uncommon that, that Christians all around the world today are reading the same set of texts. And we're going to join them in doing that. And the first of the lectionary readings for the first day of Advent for today actually brings us to Mark chapter 13, this spot where Jesus begins to address some significant happenings in the first century, the destruction of Jerusalem and the, and the temple, and that's all going to happen within that about at 70 AD, that the Jerusalem is sacked, the temple is destroyed. Jesus is pointing to that event in this text. But then he actually points beyond it as well. He says there's going to be great persecution. And even the people who are listening to Jesus in that day, they face that great persecution. And then Jesus, at the very last turn of that text, will begin to speak of his return, of his coming again. And now I admit, this text is full of ambiguities. It really is. And I've addressed those ambiguities in a lot more detail in other sermons. If you're like, well, get into that. I'll just send you my text from another sermon, okay? Because uh, there's a lot there. But the main thing Jesus leaves us with, and this is where I want us to focus today, is if you have your Bibles, you can flip to Mark 13, and we're going to read starting at verse 32. The main thing where he lands is this. But about that day or hour, and when he says that day, what day is he talking about? The day when he comes again in power, in glory. There will be no doubt that Jesus has returned. There's going to be no secret about it. Everyone will know that this moment happens. About that day, Jesus says, no one knows, not, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be alert. Be on guard. Pardon me, be on guard. Verse 33, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. And tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. Whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. Now just pause for a second there. Notice all of the references, all of the, 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 the references of what, about when the master will return. When are they? Evening. Midnight. When the rooster crows, and if you grew up on a farm like I did, you know that that's like an hour before the sun comes up, uh, usually, when the rooster crows, or at dawn. I think it's really interesting that Jesus chooses to speak of when we watch and wait for his return, all using dark time. I don't think that's an accident. All through the New Testament, the writers speak of this present age, the one that we're in right now is one of darkness. And they mean it in the sense when evil is still very much present. God's enemy, the forces of evil, are still active and functioning. So longing for the coming of Jesus, watching, waiting, and working at our assigned task, it will all be done when the world is still dark. I think it's incredibly helpful. As we think about our faith as well, it recognizes that our working, whatever God has called us to do, will not be easy 
It will not, it will be done in the midst of darkness. And it calls us not to give into the ways of darkness. And so Jesus concludes with this in verse 36. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Who's everyone here? Well, it's you and me. It's everyone who will read this text, everyone who will say, sign me up for the way of Jesus. I want to follow him. Because every subsequent generation has to keep watch. We'll look more at a positive element of that in a moment. But notice first, it's true that there are people who have essentially tried to make a science out of mapping just how and when the return of Christ is going to go down. The problem is, of course, if Jesus tells us that he himself doesn't even know, but only the Father, what makes us think we could ever know? This is Jesus warning us off of getting sucked into any sort of end-time speculation. So, scholar David Garland in his commentary on Mark writes, Jesus deliberately gives us no information helpful for fixing any date. Yet, false prophets continue to arise and reduce Christianity to simplistic answers. The false prophets capitalize on our craving to escape the painful paradoxes and tensions and indirectness of faith into the comfortable security of light. Indeed, it's tempting to just want to know. If I know, then my life will be easier. I'll find this security in that, but that's not what faith is like. So Jesus' command to watch is also an implicit command to stop doing other things. And I think Garland is right. The ambiguity is intended to put a stop to eschatological hysteria, to try to nail down times and places and dates. He goes on to say this, when the Son of Man comes, speaking of Jesus, he will not quiz people to see whose predictions on the date were accurate. He will want to know what we were doing. Were we proclaiming the gospel to all nations? Were we enduring suffering faithfully? Were we fulfilling the assigned tasks? Those who have been asleep, and by that he means not doing our assigned tasks, getting ourselves sidetracked by other side projects and not keeping our eyes on the horizon. Those who are asleep or buried in the task of trying to map out end times rather than carrying out the mission will be more than embarrassed. They will be judged. They'll have to give account for that. This is why Jesus warns his disciples to be on their guard. Advent calls us to sing in the words of that great hymn, and Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. Because faith isn't sight. Not yet. It will be. But that's why we watch. So the question is, how are you aiming your life? Are you living in light of Jesus' promise with the purpose he's called you to in the foreground of how you make your decisions? Will Jesus find you giving yourself to his calling when he comes? Let's look more deeply at that part. Here's the second part, the purpose. The watching is active and passive. That's why Paul says what he does in our second reading for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. So why don't you flip open there? Let's, let's continue to read. He says this to the church in Corinth, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. 
For in him you've been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What does it look like to watch then? I think Paul tells us in this text. One, watching is located in and fueled by God's grace, right? Grace and peace to you. It recognizes that God is the active agent. He is the primary actor on the stage of history. All that we are, the new identity we have as his very own children, it's because of the grace given to you in Christ Jesus. This grace is God's rich, undeserved kindness toward us. To watch, then, is to recognize God's grace. Two, watching is using our God-given gifts to work at our assigned task. We've been enriched in every way, Paul says. Everything we need, every spiritual gift we need to do the things we need to do. Now, Paul's going to go into great detail about spiritual giftedness in this letter. He's going to talk about its use and its many abuses within that church. But he's saying this, God has given you everything you need to do what he's called you to do. And that's actually where we're going in our January series. We've been, uh, every year, if you're unfamiliar at Summit Drive, we go through one of our major values, whether that's evangelism or worship. And this year, we're going to be talking about um, using our gifts in ministry. So we're going to focus on that in January in our series there. Um, But this signals as well that eagerly waiting, watching, isn't sitting on our hands. It's not biding our time, but fruitful work. It's time for putting all that God has given us to good use. Jesus spoke of our assigned task and and doing it. (laughs) Not sleeping, but staying vigilant to keep at it. Watching is actively being about God's business in the world. It's using what God has given us, our time, our talents, our treasures, like our financial resources, All of it, recognizing it's from God, it's all grace. And now it's used to build up his church to further his mission. We've actually uh, recently started putting a spot in our bulletin, you might have noticed it, where we say, hey, we've got needs in the church. There's ways that we need people to serve. And, uh, and, and people are noticing, they're saying, hey, where, where, can I, where can I begin to get involved? Where can I begin to serve others? I want to get at my task I want to stay vigilant in it. And so you can find that. We're trying to update it every week as a staff team just to point out the ways that you can serve. We've also got a spot on our, if you've searched through our webpage at all, you can find that we have a spot where you can just find out more about serving in different ways. And so if you're like, well, where, where do I do that? Are there ways? Yes, we can help you and point you in directions where you can use your gifts. So that's the question. Are you using what God has given you? Are you putting it to work? That's what he's calling us to. But now there is a paradox here too. Though watching is a kind of working, it also has a passive element to it. What do I mean by that? Well, this is is part three, uh, or point three. Watching is eagerly expecting the revealing of Jesus. It's eager. Back to my sitting in the classroom on that sunny 
spring afternoon, you know, I had a sense of what was to come when the teacher said, class dismissed, and I was eager for it. Yes, there's things that we're called to do. There's work that Jesus has assigned to each of us, but, but the timing of Jesus' return, his coming again, it's something we have to eagerly await, but we do so with patience because it's God's timing. We don't make it happen. We simply do the things he's called us to do. And it's particularly hard for us, I think, in cultural North America. Um, like, we tend to be people of action, right? We want, we want to get things done. We tend to take shorter lunches than the French who lounge around and take their time. Like, we don't do siestas like the Spanish. We pride ourselves in busy, busy, busy. We easily get impatient. We want to move things along. Come on, let's just get things going. But eagerly expecting the revealing of Jesus is not something we get done. It's still very much waiting. And it's eager because we see the need for it. That's why Advent calls us to pay attention to the darkness. That's very real. Advent isn't a time for getting into the Christmas spirit. It's a time to feel humanity's deep need for redemption. I saw this short clip of a comedian. He wasn't a Christian comedian. You could tell by the language. Uh, But he was making a point that had a really clever, just from a clever observation. He just, he basically said this, like atheism, believing that there's no God, no afterlife, no heaven, no hell, none of that stuff, no life after this one. He says, uh, atheism is, is actually the height of privilege. It's the privilege of the privilege to say, why would I care if there was a God? Why would I care if there's a life after this one? Look, I've got everything I want. I've got everything I need. I'm not facing any challenge in the world. I don't, I don't long for anything to change, really. He said that's the height of privilege. Why would I long for redemption if I have it all now? His point, which I think is fair, is that it's most often those who are poor, those who are oppressed, those whose bodies are failing, or who are plagued by mental health challenges, those where injustices stare them straight in the face day in and day out, those who have been mistreated by the powerful, those are the ones who are eager for God to do something. They're longing for redemption. They are the ones who say with Isaiah, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Like, God, we need you to do something. We need you to act, please. So the question is this, are you eager for Jesus' return? If not, you might want to ask yourself, am I insulating myself from the desperate need of the world? Or am I trying to numb the sense that the world is broken with maybe busyness, maybe shopping, maybe I just don't want to get involved with you and your issues, maybe some other distraction. I confess, this is the thing that often tempts me to stop watching. It's just too much sometimes. It's painful to look at the needs of the world and respond in love because that's costly. And it's partly that we just can see so much brokenness with our access to like 24-hour news feeds, literally at our fingertips. But that's no excuse to ignore it. It's no excuse to numb it either. Yes, there is a space, of course, for like self-care, for having a hobby, but it's easy to let our hearts and minds become insulated from the real world. So maybe your Advent practice, maybe I'm just going to chuck out a few Advent practices to start here. Maybe yours starts with asking God to help you see the world 
the way he does. Just to give you like these eyes of compassion. So that when you see the news or the challenges that are facing our own community, not to turn away quickly and try to like, oh yeah, I've got this other thing to kind of distract me with. Instead of turning away quickly, we pray in the face of the pain. Without flinching or looking away, we say, our Father who art in heaven, may your name be honored everywhere. May your kingdom come quickly. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we ask, God, what's my part of the assignment? Where are you asking me to address the brokenness in the world? Because again, that waiting and watching is both passive. Yes, it'll be you who does it, but it's also active. And you're calling me to work in the midst of it to keep watch. Or maybe for you, it's just being a little bit less worried about getting the presence for everyone to make sure that all the expectations are ticked off on your box and just say, I want to be more present. I want to be more present to those God has put in my life, to give yourself and your presence to them, to those in your care. Maybe that looks for you like just asking your neighbor or coworker, how are you? How are you really? And then just preparing to listen. Listen with all of the emotional energy that's needed to make yourself truly present, to show someone God's love. Waiting has that passive element for sure. There's an open-handedness to God and God's timing, but the waiting has an active element too, a putting to use those God-given gifts. Look again at the blessing of Paul at the end of this prayer section of the letter. He says this in verses 8 and 9, He, that is God, will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This goes back to what we've talked about the last couple weeks of our series in John. God is the active agent. When we put our trust in God, we're trusting in his ability to hold us to be faithful, to wash us and clean us and make us ready for the coming of Jesus. What a promise. And so four, watching recognizes that God is the main actor. He is the subject of it all. Who will keep you firm to the end? Who will empower you to live out this hope? He, he will, God will. The one who called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, that God is faithful. That's the promise. Waiting means working. Yes, it's active. And it's waiting in deep confidence that God will form us and keep us aligned with his good purposes. It's deep trust in that sense. You know, I had a particularly challenging pastoral situation that came up on Tuesday. It was right while I was wrestling with this text about God, like keeping us blameless and being faithful. And then my attention was turned to this really challenging moment and so I was wrestling with this text and this, and this challenging thing I was, was working through. And then I got a phone call from Brother Leroy. Leroy is part of our church here. And he and I chat often. And he asked how I was doing. That presence question, how are you doing, Dave? Brother Dave, he calls me, because uh, he's Jamaican. Um, how are you doing, Brother Dave? And I told him, I said, I'm really struggling. And I didn't tell him what it was about. I just said, there's a pastoral situation that came across my desk. And my heart is broken right now. And he just in sensitivity said, can I pray for you? And I said, would you please do that? And he did. 
And he didn't know what I was studying, but he began to pray the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He, God, is faithful, and he will keep us blameless till the end, to the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessing. And as he said amen, I said, you'll never believe this, Leroy, but that's the text I was wrestling with. And thanks be to God for that sensitivity. I get to the board meeting that night, and uh, Brenda is one of our uh, board members. She's our deacon of women's ministry. She opens the text for our devotional, and lo and behold, it's 1 Corinthians 1, verses 3 to 9. And let me tell you, those sorts of moments where God is speaking to you in multiple ways are a reminder that God is at work all the time. God is the main actor on the stage of history. When I'm facing something where I'm like, I don't know what to do, I remember that God is faithful, that he is the one who's going to be at work in the middle of it all. That's good news. He is truly with us while we wait. Here's the last thing. Watching is in fellowship with his son. Isn't that the heart of it all? Isn't that the gospel itself? That through God's love, we've been forgiven and we're brought by Jesus into relationship with him forever through what he's done for us on the cross, through his resurrection and his ascension, he now reigns as king. And so we long for Jesus to return because we want to be with the one who loved us, who gave himself for us. And that leads to our last thing, that posture is watching as an act of loving longing. Uh, there was a brief season in our marriage where Catherine and I were, um, she had a field education placement as a part of her Master of Science in Occupational Therapy. I was living in Hamilton doing my, my theology studies, and her placement was in Calgary, so we were like across the country. It was only about six weeks. I wouldn't say it was the worst six weeks of my life, but it might have been the longest. It was long because I was longing to be with her, because I loved her. I wanted to be close to her. Yes, I could call her on the phone, and that was wonderful. And we could talk, and there was that communication and communion there, but it was something different. Now, beautifully, mercifully, Jesus is present to us at all times, in all places, through the giving of his Holy Spirit. He really is with us while we wait. But we also wait, and eagerly, for the unmediated, personal, physical, bodily resurrected presence of Jesus with a special kind of longing. You know, one of our sons was in bed. Uh, he was having a hard time falling asleep, and, and so he's asking for another snuggle. <clears throat> and Catherine, being a great disciple-making kind of mom that she is, she said, you can just take this time to, you know, to pray to God as you fall asleep, just to bring to him all those things on your mind. You can just talk to God about it. And he says back, yeah, but I also want someone that I can touch as well. And that's fair enough. I, I get that. It's true. Jesus is with us. We do have fellowship with him right now that is sweet and true. But we are, like my son, longing for the unmediated closeness. Why? Because of love. I recently met with uh, Renata. She's uh, new to our church in the last few years, and, and uh, we were chatting through her mom's funeral service. We were talking about it, and I just wanted to hear more about her mom, so I came over, met with her and Adam, and, and I just asked her to tell me more about her mom, and it turns out her mom has, had, was like a full-time missionary to unreached peoples for most of her life. She was working in Papua New Guinea, and then at the bottom of the Grand Canyon where Renata was born, and she lived for the first, uh, I think, seven years of her life. She hadn't even left it. 
just meeting with that. And so, and her, and so her mom, I, just, I, I was finding out, was just this amazing woman of, of deep faith. And as we're talking about, you know, kind of the Advent season, we're going to do a funeral right in the middle of Advent. I said, it's fitting though, isn't it? Because what we're ultimately longing for is in Advent is encapsulated in that word Maranatha. Come, Lord. It's an Aramaic phrase that means come, Lord. And as I mentioned this, I saw Renata's eyes begin to fill up with tears, and she said, my mom signed off every letter with Maranatha. She lived in that sure hope, that desire for Jesus to come again. She was straining to see that day, and I thought that's exactly what's at the heart of Advent. And Paul, he begins 1 Corinthians with this language of eagerly awaiting the day of Jesus being revealed. At the end, he reproduces that Aramaic word in Greek in the very last sentence of the book, and he says, Maranatha, Lord, please come. So as we look at the injustice of the world, the evil, the pain, we can echo that same longing to keep our eyes fixed on the horizon to say Maranatha. This doesn't mean being disengaged from the world, not at all. But, like Renata's mom, it means commitment to being about what God is about to using the gifts he's given us to participate in the healing of the world through our words of hope and our works of hope. Words that announce that the king has come, that Jesus the Savior has come, that God loves us, he died for us, he rose again, that we can enjoy the forgiveness of sin and real life now and real life forevermore. And it comes with work that aligns with that hope that attends to the wounds of, of our world in pain. Maybe for you it's as simple as signing up and being like, yeah, I can ring a bell with the Salvation Army's kettle campaign. Or maybe I can prepare a hamper through Hopewell's uh, a hamper thing. I provided a link in the bulletin for that if you're interested. Maybe it's taking the time, like I mentioned, to just listen to a friend. So we live in light of Jesus' first coming, the inauguration of his kingdom, and we live in the tension between that and the fullness of his coming. So maybe it's making an invitation to join us for our night in Bethlehem. I bumped into two people randomly this week, and I just said, you know what? Do you think you and your kids would like to come? It's just this event where you hear the Christmas story. It's interactive. It's great for kids. And both of them said, yeah, I'd love to. What time is it at? Maybe part of the words of hope is inviting people to hear the Christmas story or inviting them to one of our Christmas Eve services. Those are at 2, 3.30, and 5 this year. It's in our bulletin now, too, if you're wondering or wanted to invite a friend. So as we both prepare to celebrate the first coming of Jesus in a few weeks, we take these next moments to focus again on Jesus' coming, to bring the full restoration of the world. That's what we long for. He will come and judge all evil. He will end it forever. He will be fully present. So indeed, Maranatha. And one of the main ways he gives us of looking forward is actually his table. And I'm going to invite those who are serving to come forward. Our worship team is going to come as well. In that same letter, 1 Corinthians, Paul sketches out what it means to remember Jesus, to look back, but also to long and strain for his coming again. And he does it by focusing on the table. Um, Maybe for those who are unfamiliar, the table is the place where Jesus used the bread and the cup of the Passover celebration to say, 
this is what I'm doing again. I'm making a way for you to come to God, and this is a way to remember it. And so in the middle of this book of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this to help us understand what the meaning of this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this, meaning eat this, in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, the new agreement between humanity and God, the new way of being brought into relationship with him. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, drink it, and whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Notice, it's a looking back. It's a remembering what Jesus has done. And as we look back, he says, now turn your eyes to what's to come. I'm coming back for you. Do this. And as you do it, as we gather and take this meal together, we're saying the Lord reigns. We're proclaiming his death until he comes. And we're going to do that. Um, This is for everybody who's made a profession of faith who said, yes, Jesus, I accept your forgiveness. I've trusted you. I want to follow you. This is for everybody in that place. And you might say, well, I've messed things up too bad. That's the thing about grace is it says the table is for you. This is the place maybe that you need to say, yes, I've messed things up, but God in his mercy has mercy on me today. So if you're at that place where you're saying, I Trust you, Jesus. This is for you to take. If you're at a place where you're saying, well, I'm not sure yet, you, just, you can just stay in your seats. You don't need to get up. Uh, but for all those who want to, here's how we do it. Uh, we start with the back rows on the main floor. Um, just coming down the center aisles, you'll take the bread and the cup, both of those elements, and you'll just walk back to your seat along the outer aisles, back to your seat, and hold on to those because we'll take them all together in a moment. Uh, it's the same thing for upstairs as well. We just start, um, I think we start in the front rows though up there. And you just go out the, the side ones and then come in the center. So it's a little bit different upstairs. Uh, let me pray as we prepare our hearts for this. Jesus, give us hearts that eagerly await your coming. God, we confess that there's, there's times when we just want to distract ourselves because it's too hard to look at the pain of the world. But Lord, you've given us this season, this time to just wrestle with the darkness, to not flinch or look away, but instead to let it grow our hunger for you to come again and make the world right. So Jesus, we do say Maranatha, Lord, please come. And we come to the table now recognizing that we are to do this, to remember what you've done for us until you come again. So, Lord, hear our prayers. We love you. Amen. Jesus, we thank you that you took on flesh, that you are God with us, and that you allowed yourself, your body, to break so that you might mend and heal our lives. You allowed your blood to be shed for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could be made right with the holy God 
It's not based on us. It's all based on your grace. And we celebrate it today. We say thank you as we take this. Amen. Let's take it together. The cup.